Hey guys, welcome back to Foul Play. Today I'm joined with Gemma. Gemma, why don't you explain who's with us today? I will. We're really looking forward to this interview today. A lot of people have asked about those in the keepers who took polygraphs. So today's guest is the owner and operator of Ortsec LLC. It's a veteran-owned polygraph and security consulting company founded by a retired FBI special agent. And that special agent is our special guest. So we want you to join us in welcoming William Ortiz. Hey, William. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. If we could start, can you tell us about something about your background and your education so we can get an idea of how you got where you are? Sure. My degree is in criminal justice. I do have some graduate work on forensic physiology. I served in the Marines for six and a half years. I was an FBI agent for 22 years. In 2019, I decided to hand the gloves and retire. And then about a month after, I opened a credibility assessment company based in Tampa, Florida. Can you talk a little bit about your experience as an FBI agent? Sure. 22 years, I did a lot of fun stuff. I started working domestic terrorism. Then I went to violent crimes, major offenders, street gangs. And then we had the 9-11 attacks. Bureau changed. Priorities changed. Then I became a switch to international terrorism. We specialized in Al-Qaeda. I worked Al-Qaeda cases overseas. I'm an FBI certified hostage crisis negotiator. I'm also certified SWAT operator and a certified holographic set. So I just want to clarify, you said you were an FBI agent for 22 years. Yes, ma'am. So you must have started right around 9-11, correct? I joined in 97, September 1997, so about four years. Yeah. So you've traveled a lot being international. Yes, I've been all over the world, very exciting places and not so exciting places. (laughs) And if you couldn't be more interesting enough, you own a polygraph business. Can you tell us about that and what kind of services you provide? Yes, sure. It's Horsec, and it's a credibility assessment company. What we do is uh, we interview people. We obtain evidence. We try to prove and disprove accusations. A lot of the work that we do is for attorneys. We also do pre-employment and maintenance interviews. Our interviews are legally sound and can produce, will produce that stand up in court if needed. One of the tools that we use is a potograph, and we use that to validate what people tell us when we interview them. So we travel, we have, I'm sorry, we have corporate clients. We have government clients, like I mentioned before, attorneys, just regular citizens. If people want to know the truth, then we're there for them. So when you say credibility assessment, what would that mean in not technical language? Could you give us an example of what that means? People will give us a story and we're going to conduct specialized interviews to determine, yeah, to determine whether this person is telling the truth or not. Is he answering the questions the way an honest person would answer the questions or not? And then at the end of the interview, again, we're going to strap sensors, components, and run data, run a, a record physiological response. The individual physiology as he answers or he, she answered questions. And then with all of that together, then now we reach a result. Okay, this person is evidently having problems with the issue at hand or not. Are you called into court often to evaluate witnesses or people who were in jail? Or- so we go to court only to discuss the results of our findings. And it's a little more complicated than that. So we don't, when we go to court, 
and I'm saying as an FBI agent, when I was asked to testify, I would not introduce myself as a particle examiner. I was just a like FBI agent because we're not going to be introducing the results of polygraph as evidence. What we're introducing is what the person said to me. That means the confession. If it's obviously legally obtained, then it is admissible. That confession is admissible in court. So that's what we would testify to in court. We're going to next ask you about the training that is involved in becoming a polygraph examiner. Sure. So there are different types of polygraph examiners. You have federal polygraph examiners, like I am. Then you have state and local police polygraph examiners, and you just have a regular polygraph examiner with no law enforcement background. I can tell you about becoming a federal examiner. We go to a polygraph training center. It's called, we'll call it NICA, just a national center for credibility assessment. And that is in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So that's where all the three-letter agencies send their prospect examiners, FBI, CIA, NSA, and all those three-letter agencies. I went through it in 2010, and I believe the training was three and a half months. Yeah, and the center is known to be the premier polygraph training center in the world. We're learning biology, student physiology, interview and interrogation, polygraph instrumentation. We'll talk about question construction, different testing formats, countermeasures, data analysis. Towards the end of the training, then we start doing lab work, just basically role playing. And we're testing individuals who have been asked to commit a crime, a fake crime. And then we would interview them and conduct polygraph exams to determine whether they committed the crime or not. So we do that ooh, many hours. So when we're done with training, polygraph examiners ready to start running exams for other agencies. You said that's the Federal Center for Polygraph Training? Yeah, it's called the National. Yeah, it has changed names several times, but now it's called the National Center for Credibility Assessment, NICA. And it must be a huge facility. Is it like a college campus? It's on an army base, Fort Jackson, and it's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty big building. It's not a campus; it's a building, and there's there was an adjacent building which was a lab next to it. Do regular people like Gemma and Shane ever get to go and see that place, or is that like highly classified? You know, good question. I think that you have to call you have to call them. And see if they will let you tour the facility. I don't see, there's nothing classified there. There's some blocks of instruction that, that may be classified, but you're not attending training. You're looking at the facilities. And so I don't see why they pull them, but I don't know. The government works in weird ways sometimes. <laughs> Road trip, Shane. Yeah, I'm all for that. William, what exactly is the step-by-step process that you have to go through when you're administering a polygraph? I think that most people you know, would have never have been in one. So I think that's a question that most people would like to know. Yes. Uh, obviously, the examiner needs to prepare for examination. So not including any of that until let's talk about the actual examination. The examination has three stages or phases. The pre-test interview, the actual examination, the in-test phase, and the post-test. The pretest, I believe, is the most important part of the examination, which is the first one. This is typically lasts about an hour and a half to two hours. And this is where, when, where I, as an examiner, I'm trying to build rapport with the examinee. 
I'm trying to put him at ease. I'm going to be explaining. I'm going to give him an overview of what's going to happen. I'm going to explain photographs, how it works. We'll go over any legal rights that examining may be entitled to. Do a practice test to calibrate. And I want to see, I want to give him an opportunity to start feeling comfortable with the sensors before the actual exam. I want to see that he's able to follow instructions, which is very important. I want to see what his body looks like, his baseline, if you will. And I want to see how his body reacts when he tells a lie. During this practice test, I'm going to ask him to lie to me. I'll ask him some medical questions because I need to be sure that he's fit to take the test. That includes any alcohol consumption, any drugs. At some point, I'm going to start discussing the actual relevant issues. We'll be conversing. It's not only a yes or no type of interview. He gets, the examinee gets to explain his answers. If he has any questions, he'll, at the end of the pretest, I need to make sure that he understands exactly what is it that I'm going to be asking him. As a final step, so the pretest is I'm going to review the actual questions the examinee is going to be asked during the in-test. Again, just for me to make sure that he or she understands what he's going to be asked. Then he'll be asked to move to the photograph chair. I'll connect all the sensors and then I'm going to run questions that phase is about five to 10 minutes long. So I'm going to be recording the examinee's physiology as he answers my questions. And then the post-test, the final stage is when we discuss the results of the test. If he does, then thank you for coming. If he doesn't, then we're going to be discussing, okay, what caused you to not do well. Okay. That's basically it. Obviously, the examination is recorded. The examinee is told that the examination is recorded for their protection, for my protection, and for quality control purposes. What we're used to seeing is the end test part. That's what we see on television, right? Because it's because it's so dramatic. So I'm interested in what the pa the paper that's got the needle that goes back and forth. What exactly is that measuring? And you talked about sensors. So where are the sensors and what do those marks on the paper mean? So those needles represent, and by the way, we don't have needles anymore. That's old school. Now it's all computer-based. The needles can, those are channels. We have two pneumograph channels. That's respiration. So you have two tubes, one high across your chest, another one lower across your abdomen. So I'm going to be looking at your upper respiration and breathing and upper body movement. Then we have... The electrodermal activity plates, they go on the fingers, and those are used to record sweat and activity. Then the cardiac cuff is like a blood pressure cuff, records heart rate and blood volume. And then I'm going to have some motion sensors, seat sensors, foot sensors. And then some examiners use additional components, uh, sensors, those are what I use. So those are the lines that you see when you look at the grass, the charts. So I just want to make sure I understand. So you're measuring respiration, sweat, the amount of sweat that somebody's body produces, and their heart rate. Is it their blood pressure or their heart rate? Okay. okay. And I'm only used to seeing what's on television. When the needle swings wide, that means there's a discrepancy and that something's one of those sensors is picking up something that's not normal. But the examiner knows the examiner's normal physiology, the baseline. And if we see, so if the examiner shows reactions, would you see that big reaction, the needle moving big? That's a physiological response. It could be attributed to 
The question you may not be, but that's what we call a reaction. The questions are asked several times in random order. So if I ask you, did you go to McDonald's this morning? Then your answer is no. And I'll tell you, okay, this, that's what I'm going to be asking you during the test. And when I ask you, did you go to McDonald's? Obviously, and with other questions, but that's, let's say, let's call that the relevant question. So I ask you, did you go to McDonald's this morning? You answer no, and I see a huge response. And then, okay, let me ask it again. Second, second chart, different order. Then you react to that question again. So after three, four, five presentations, I see that you always reacted to the McDonald's question. I'm not going to accuse you of lying, but you need to explain to me why is it that when you answer no to that, you, your body's showing physiological responses. Not the computer, not polygraph, but you know, your body. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So I've, now I have two questions about that. Have you ever ha- had somebody make a confession? All the time. Oh, yeah. All the time. Oh, yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> yes. Okay. But, and you're a, you're a law enforcement officer. Have you had to make an arrest or is there somebody else there that would do that? Like the bad guys ever jump over the table and try and go after you? Okay. It's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. The way it goes, I have a fellow guy agent telling me, hey, William, I think this guy robbed this bank. I want him tested. I'll ask him, okay, tell me about the case. And this is when I start prepping, preparing for the test. This is a week or two before the exam, ideally. So I've studied the file and okay, the day of polygraph comes. So the agent and I discuss, okay, what is it that you want to validate. This is what I propose asking. So once we all agree, we have a strategy, then the examinee is asked to come in. Hey, on Monday, come to the FBI office in Tampa to take the polygraph examination as you agree, right? Because you have to agree to, to take it. The individual comes in. My fellow agent is in my office, not in my polygraph suite, looking at the interview, right? Through monitors, taking notes and all of that. I'm the one the only one in the polygraph of suite with the examinee suspect. And let's say he admits to 
robbing the bank. Guess what? My fellow agent is already paying attention and taking notes and, okay, yeah, we're going to take this guy. Chances are that they're going to, once I give him the green light, okay, we're done. Then the agent walks in and he's put into handcuffs. But it depends. It could be allowed to walk, go home and be arrested a lot later. So that's, yeah. So I don't put the handcuffs myself. Yes, when I was working, when I was investigating, yes, I did put handcuffs on people. But once I became a full-time product of examiner, my job was to interview. A lot of times we had to refer cases to the locals because it wasn't a real, let's say you're an applicant, so you're not the suspect of a federal crime, but during the applicant examination, you confess to committing local crimes, then we will call the jurisdiction and this guy is touching kids and take them. Did you say that the person who's taking the polygraphed examination, they're given the questions ahead of time? No. Did you say they know they're not? No, no they don't. Okay. So is there anybody that we would know, like any names of any really big bad dudes that you've administered polygraph to that you can share? There was a very high profile case out of St. Mary's, Ohio. So it was a very old case. It was a better case. And it was at the time, a 71-year-old man was found beaten to death at home. So that case was solved, I want to say, for over 30 years. So at some point, the PD decided to go over cold, old cases, and they decided to contact the FBI for assistance. The FBI reviewed the case, and they suggested to polygraph a suspect they had back then. The police did not have enough on the individual, so that's why he was never arrested. Anyway, I interviewed him, and uh, yeah, he admitted to killing the individual after 30-plus years of the commission of committing the crime. Yeah, so that was a big case back then because it was small town USA. You don't kill people there. It sounds like polygraphs, when you get them in there, I don't know if pressure is the right word for it, but they feel like they're in an honest mood, I guess. I don't know that I agree with you. I don't know that pressure is the right word. Is people come in nervous, anxious, and oh my goodness, what's going to happen to me? As an examiner, my job is to negate all of that. I'm going to put you at ease. We're going to become buddies and you're going to feel so good. You're going to like me and you're going to want to talk to me. And, uh, and yeah, you're going to feel so uncomfortable, so comfortable with me that you're going to give me statements against self-interest. Do you have to give them the Miranda rights? Not always. Depends. I say, I'm trying to think back. I want to say that the vast majority of the times, I would say 95% of the time, I did not. Now, this is at a federal level, right? For you to have that, you have to be arrested or you can't be free to go. Or if you came in willingly, you drove your car. But if I know that you're going to be arrested right after the interview, then yes, I do need to advise you of your right. But other, otherwise, I don't have to. Even if you tell me, yeah, I killed that man, I can continue to test you or interview you without any rights. Now, if you tell me, I think I want to talk to a lawyer, then yes, that's the end of it. Now I need to get an attorney. You don't, it's not just, oh, you need to say, I want an attorney. By just insinuating that you want an attorney, that'll be enough for me to stop the interview and get an attorney. I don't want to lose evidence. So if you say something to me like that, and I don't get you an attorney, and then you tell me that you killed the person, guess what? I'm going to lose that evidence. And people have to come in to talk to you voluntarily, don't they? Or they don't have to be forced to do it. If they are forced, 
then they're not going to be tested. If I have a client or I have an examinee or I have a suspect and what I'm, again, going through my pre-test phase where we're discussing the consent forms and all of that, if I see that he's forced, then I'm wasting time. I'm going to lose the evidence. So I'll tell them, hey, you don't have to do this. I close that door for your privacy. But if at any given time you want to stop this interview, you're free to do that. That's how I do it. And that probably also helps them feel like you're on their side too. That makes right. sense. William, can a liar pass a polygraph? And can an honest person fail a polygraph? Yes. And yes. That's when I go back into the examiner. Polygraph again, all it does is records physiological responses. What makes a difference is the examiner. If I don't conduct a good interview, I'm not even asking the right questions. I have an inadequate interviewing environment. I'm unprofessional. I'm engaging on unethical behavior. All that can affect the results of the test. I can't make an examinee fail the test. And I can help an examinee pass the test. I hate saying that, but that's really how it is. So that's why it's important that when you're looking for an examiner, that you hire the right examiner. So let me give you an example of how someone who is being truthful can fail the test. I'm asking you whether you've ever, let's go back to applicant testing, screening testing. One of the questions I'll ask you, have you ever sexually abused or assaulted another person, anyone, right? Let's say the honest answer is no, but you were abused as a child, right? And you don't tell me that for whatever reason, embarrassed, but you just don't tell me. And then sit you in the polygraph chair and ask you, have you ever sexually abused anyone? And you fail the test. Guess why? Why? Guess why you're reacting? You're reacting because you are the victim. So I failed to pull that out of, the, to extract that from the examinee during the pretest. That's, that's what we call outside issues. It doesn't matter, obviously, how many, how hard you try. There will be examinees that will never volunteer information like that. But that's an example of how you can react, right? After the test, when I'm done, I'll ask you, hey, Shay, what's going on, brother? I ask you this, and you had reactions. You need to explain to me what is it. I'm sure it's not a big deal, blah, 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 blah. Then you tell me, William, what happened is this. William, you told me earlier that this is not a lie detector. That's a phrase everybody throws around. Could you explain? that statement that it's not a lie detector. Sure. Again, polygraph is a physiological recorder. That's all it does. Let's compare it to a metal detector. When you go to the airport, you have to go through a metal detector. Do we call the metal detector a terrorist detector or a felon detector? No, we don't. The metal detector is only designed to detect metals. So someone going through the metal detector with metals, with keys in the pocket, that's, that doesn't make them a felon. That doesn't make them a terrorist. Going back to polygraph, you can have physiological responses even when you're not lying. That's why we don't call polygraph a lie detector. Polygraph does not confirm that a person is lying. What it does is it measures the change in the reaction to the questions that are being asked. In what countries or states are polygraphs admissible in court? There are several states in the U.S. that allow polygraph results in court, but both parties must agree. There are many other countries that will use polygraph, again, as an investigative tool. In Japan, for example, polygraph is used, but only for specific issues in criminal investigations. But 
I want to see that more and more jurisdictions are using polygraph in one way or another. And again, let's remember this too. Let me remind you of this. What the evidence, as an investigator, and this is what I used to tell my fellow FBI agents, don't worry whether the results of the polygraph exam is admissible or not. I'm one of those who think they should never be admissible because like I mentioned to you before, one can fail the test when, even when being truthful, pass a test when being deceptive. So the evidence, it's really the admissions, the confessions. So if the confession was legally obtained, followed the rule of law, then that is the evidence. So I would tell my agents, don't worry about the results of the test. What good does it do if I tell you, okay, the guy failed the test, but I don't have a confession. We'll be back to square one. So I will work hard. Examiners will work hard to get admissions and confessions. And that's what the investigating agent will take to court. Okay. William, in the keepers, which you and I have talked about, and I know you've seen it, Sister Kathy Sesnick's priest friend, Jerry Koo, he was given two polygraphs. The first one was given to him by the, I guess you call it given or administered by the Baltimore City Police Department when Sister Kathy disappeared. And then the other was given several months later by a different jurisdiction, the Baltimore County Police, when her body was found. Now, how might the questions differ and what would be the reason that Kube was tested twice? All right. So remember, this is 1969 and 1970. It may not seem to charge in the reading the file. I can only speculate, but I would have to assume that the first test was to determine whether he caused the death of Sister Kathy or participated or in any way knew who caused her death. That would be the first test. A second test could be because the county did not trust the results of the police test, or it could be that they tested on something else related, but a different relevant issue. It could be a, a different format. It could be a guilty knowledge test. He was asked to see if he knew the items that were used to cause the death of Sister Kathy. So, yes, I would have to see the charge and so many possibilities. But yes, the police tested, did you kill her? And the county tested, was it a gun? Was it a knife? Was it a... Only the perpetrator would know. If, let's say it's not public knowledge, no one knows. Only the police is aware of what weapon or tool was used to cause the death of that woman, then as an examiner, if I know that, I can test a subject, or I'm going to test him to see if he knows what weapon was used. Again, it's now where to be found. The police has never, they have never said anything to the media. No one knows. And I say a hammer was used to cause death. So I would ask, was it a gun? Was it a knife? Was it a hammer? Was it none of the above? So if we reacted to the hammer every time I asked that, then that tells me, okay, he knew it was a hammer. So how is it that he knows that it was a hammer when no one else knows? I have a follow-up to that. Once Sister Kathy was found, she was in the county, the missing person case was closed because it was turned over to Baltimore County Homicide. I was able to get the missing person report with a local Maryland Public Information Act. So I have all those documents, but would that polygraph be available as a public document once the missing person 
case was closed. Is it worth me trying to get that? Would that be in those files, Joe? Yes, I would try to get that. I don't know what the local policy is, rules and regulations, but if you're able to get that, I'd love to review those charts and see the report because I may agree with the examiner's conclusion or I mean, and explain why I don't agree or agree with it. But yeah, I will get both exams. I doubt that I will be able to get it, but I'm going to try. We never thought about getting that, Shane, when we got everything else. We have everything else, but we don't have that polygraph results for the first, for the missing person case. So putting that on my list now. Yeah, I think that would be worth it. William, also Jerry Koob's friend, Pete McKeon, he claimed that he was with Koob that night and he was also polygraphed, but on a different day. If the two men talked in between their tests, how could that affect their results? May or may not. The two discussing the exam actually would not affect the results. It would do is just give Pete the benefit of knowledge, the questions, if in fact was asked the same questions, but he prepared him. For your kids. For your career. For your parents. For yourself. For the people who believed in you when no one else did. You know why you want your degree. But you might not know how to make it happen. That's where IWU comes in. With more than 160 online programs and convenient courses that fit with your schedule, we can equip you to achieve your dreams without putting the rest of your life on pause. Visit IWUishow.com to get started. Self to, okay, this is what they're going to, I'm going to be at, and this is how I'm going to answer it. Okay, big deal. If you did it, you're going to fail. If you're not going to fail. But going back to applicant testing, applicants know the questions they're going to be asked because they research, okay? The FBI sent me an email. My polygraph is on Monday. Let me go online and see what to expect. Learn how long it's going to be, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, people know what they'll be asked. Now, I don't know if what exams were exactly the same questions, that the questions were the same ones, but yeah, it would not affect the results of the test. Interesting. I guess I figured if they were on different days, that would skew the results, but probably wouldn't because you're measuring physiological responses. So if Pete, when he answered no to the questions, if he knew that he was lying or he feared getting caught in a lie, he would have physiological responses. He would have had physiological responses. Okay. Along the same lines, Jerry Coop told me a couple of years ago that the county officer, the one that administered the polygraph after Sister Kathy's body was found, he called him a rookie. Is nineteen in nineteen seventy? Would it be possible for a rookie officer to be administering a polygraph? Yeah, yes. Yeah. We all have to start somewhere, but I don't buy that. Though we all have big egos. Do you think I'm going to tell a subject I'm a rookie? I don't know what I'm doing. Of course not. As an examiner, I want to give my examiner confidence. I wanted him to feel like this guy knows what he's doing, even if I don't. But I'm not going to tell someone, hey, man. Hopefully, you'll pass. I'm a rookie, so. Don't hold that against me. No, no, I don't buy that. And uh, so, yeah, I don't see that. But it is possible for a department or an agency to assign a, an experienced examiner to test. I mean, if that's all they have, yeah, that's all they have. Seems like by then it was a pretty high-profile case, and I've always wondered about that. But he also told me, he didn't exactly say he didn't pass, but what he said was that after the exam, the officer said to him, Either you don't trust me or you're hiding something. And Coop responded that he wasn't hiding anything, so it must be the first, that he didn't trust the officer. 
What would that infer to you? Yeah, I would think that he passed the test. If you failed my test, you got to, you got to know. I'm going to tell you, hey, you failed my test. There's no doubt in my mind that you did whatever the allegation is, right? And then we're going to start talking about, okay, what led you to that, blah, blah, blah. When we are vague like that, is it's an indication that he passed the test. Again, I would have to see the charts. Maybe he was a rookie and he didn't know how to score the test. Obviously, I don't want to believe that, but I want to say that's a typical, what we call it post-test of someone who passed the test. Because we're asking control questions. And if you're reacting to the control questions, obviously we're going to say, okay, you're hiding something, but we're not going to the relevant issues. So yeah, if he had failed, did you cause the death of that woman? That examiner had to interrogate the examinee. And he would have known. To follow up on that, when people normally fail polygraphs, is that normally made public information? It's all part of the investigation. And if the investigation is not for public consumption, then no. Can certain personality types pass polygraphs without blinking an eye if they're very good? I personally don't believe that. We got to go back to what polygraph is. Okay. The one that will determine whether someone passed or not is examiner. The polygraph, again, I'm recording to show the response. Let's say you don't feel any remorse for killing someone, right? And you may actually believe, if you believe it's not, if you believe it to be true, then it's different. But if you know you're telling a lie, that cognitive Process, cognitive load. Those are physiologic responses you can't control. They come from the central nervous system. Like when I'm calibrating, for example, the instrument, sometimes I ask my examinees, hey, what's two plus two? Obviously, easy question, not threatening in nature. It's four. When they answer four, their bodies have their physiological responses. It's because of all of that, because of the thought, right? Lying is intentionally done. So, the same thing, because you're intentionally lying. Okay, this is when I need to lie. You want to show reactions. Yeah, I don't buy that psychos can pass a test, no. So for Jerry Coob, it would be up to him to tell people if he failed or passed a test, that wouldn't have been something that would have been released to the public. Is that correct? Yeah, he's not going to tell you. And for you to know for sure, you would have to go back to either the county or the police. Every time I've tested subjects, the FBI never went back. They never came out to the media. Hey, this guy felt, and I've tested very high profile exam individuals and we never went to the media. Hey, he felt exam. No, we don't do that. And would it be fair to say that if someone were to fail a test, you wouldn't want people to know that that's not a very good thing. But also if you were being tested by someone who was a rookie compared to someone who has done it for many years, like yourself. If you found someone failed a test versus a rookie found someone failed a test, or if you found someone who passed a test versus a rookie who found someone who passed a test, would you say, in your opinion, that your findings would be more accurate than the rookie's finding? I would. My answer to that is this. Let's go to the test. Let's say it was recorded. Like now we have to record exams. I would want to hear the recording because if a rookie ran a test, the way it's supposed to is going to have the same result that an experienced examiner is going to uh, use or, or to obtain. 
Is there ever instances where examiners have different opinions? Oh, yes. All the time. Because of experiences. Yes. All the time. But it's mainly on data analysis, I would think. One might think, oh, this is a bigger reaction than the other one, and the numbers might be a little off. But, uh, but that's actually rare, I want to say. I mean, that we have a QC process, quality control process, agencies have those, and at times an examiner will send to quality control a passing test or failing test in quality control will reverse that. The quality control being another examiner. So yes, two examiners can disagree. Yes. Good. Thank you for answering that question. That was a very thorough question. Before I ask this question, one thing that you mentioned earlier, I feel like you, Gemma, I'm just jumping around asking all these questions. This is not like me. I'm asking a bunch of questions. It's not on my paper. Earlier you had... I see a job in your future, Shane. <laughs> this is what happens after you're sick and you're at home for a couple of weeks that you're just, you get out and you just feel like you have all the questions, you want to do all the talking. Earlier, you mentioned that some of the reasons that people fail polygraphs is because of things that they don't tell you ahead of time. For example, you mentioned if you ask someone if they abused a child, they may fail that question because they reacted negatively because they were abused child. And one of the things in my head that made me think of that is because on a previous podcast, we once had this conversation with someone about how sometimes victims of child sexual abuse do not like to share that they were victims of that because there is this stigma that just because you were abused as a child, you will go on to abuse children because there is this thought that I see it in the true crime community all the time. When you watch a true crime show or you hear about this person who abused children, Oh, I bet they were abused as a child. And that puts a huge stigma behind people who were abused as children. So I just want that to resonate with listeners for a moment that people who are abused as children don't always speak about it because of that stigma behind it because of that reason. So going back to the actual question that has nothing to do with what I just said, how, how has polygraph technology changed since that time 50 years ago? I know you mentioned that the needles that we still see on TV now is not a thing. That's kind of still a Hollywood thing. Yeah, so it has progressed tremendously. We're not... We're digital now. We're not using analog equipment. We don't have those big boxes and printers in the polygraph room and charge printing us. We're asking questions. It's all digital. We even have software that we, that will score charge, not that I use those, but that testing formats have changed. Scoring techniques have changed. Polygraph now is a lot better than it was years ago and it continues to improve as to speak. We have a lot of people doing research and we're only trying to make it better. William, okay, here I am being random. Is it necessary to be a law enforcement officer in order to be a polygraph administrator? Yes and no. Yeah. In the FBI, you need to be a law enforcement officer. In some agencies, you don't have to. But in general terms, you don't have to. Anyone can be a, an examiner. Now, in the FBI and certain other three-letter agencies, and I'm sure local police too, one must be a, an investigator, a law enforcement officer, because, again, a lot of it, a big part of polygraph is interviewing and interrogation. And you need someone that has experience and the right amount of training to do that. Polygraph, I say anyone can operate the instrument, right? Attach component and run it. All right, so now we know that you saw the test. Now what? That's when training and experience comes in. 
But to answer your question, you don't have to be a law enforcement officer. Okay. Like right now, I'm taking courses in criminal justice. And everything you talked about is part of that program. And would I be able to be trained as a polygraph administrator if I had my degree in criminal justice? Yes. It could be any degree. And all you have to do is look for a reputable polygraph training center, one that has been accredited by the American Polygraph Association. And yeah, join them. If you meet the requirements, that is it. You become a polygraph examiner, then maybe we can work together. I was going to say, I'm going to come and work with you, okay? Sure. <laughs> I'm. Uh, we could be, right, Shane? The way we dig. Okay, so here's your opportunity to say anything you want, any message you have for anybody who is... I think this would be a really cool career. If there's like somebody who wants to go to college and doesn't want to go into law enforcement, but likes this technical side of it, I would think that would be a very interesting career. Everybody was going to be like a CSI person, and now that's waning. So what would you like to say to our listeners? I just want to remind people that, again, polygraphs is not a lie detector. It is a physiologic recorder. What makes a difference in terms of accuracy is the examiner. So if you're looking into getting one done by yourself or someone else, looking for peace of mind, you want to know the truth, make sure you're examining the examiner's credentials and make sure you're hiring a competent examiner. We want to thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks, William. And before we let you go, because I'm such in a question-driven mood, I'll have one more question for you. And I know this is going to be a question that a lot of people have that I want to go ahead and ask you especially in the true crime community and i think in the public's eye in general there's a lot of i think distrust and maybe it's because of tv of polygraphs why do you think that is is it because of the way that hollywood portrays it or because of people who have misused it it's a combination of so many factors yes hollywood also, lack of controls, and like in some states, like in Florida, you can be an examiner and you don't need to be licensed. You want to become an examiner on YouTube, you get yourself a nice website, you buy the equipment, and now you're competing against me and you do a very bad polygraph and now you're hurting our reputation. And in the scientific community, they have a valid point. A lot of times we can't replicate. I can do the same thing with you and another examiner does it the same way and gets different results then that's, that can be problematic. At the end of the day, this is what I tell new examiners and fellow agents. The person who really needs to believe in polygraph is examiner. I need to trust my charts. If I were to show you a picture of LeBron James, and I told you that's not LeBron James, that's Michael Jordan, there's nothing I can say to you to convince you otherwise. So polygraph, the chart, that's a picture of you lying to me. So there's nothing you can say to me that will persuade me otherwise. So when I do my interrogation, start my interrogation, I want to say I have it upper hand. A regular investigator, he might think that you robbed the bank, but after an hour or two of denials, he might start second-guessing himself. Maybe she didn't do it then. You will identify that right away. You're going to be like, okay, I got it. If you have an examiner who trusts He's charged. That's not going to happen. If I have to be there four or five hours, that's what I'll do. But I know you robbed the bank because I have a picture of you 
rock in the bank. Right. So I don't pay much attention to, you know, what people say, oh, it's bogus, that doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. If that's how you feel, then take the exam. Let me do my thing. You're saying you did not rape that woman. All right. Okay. Let me do the test. And at the end of the interview, two people will know whether you raped the woman. And that'll be the examinee and examiner. So what you're saying is we have to trust the integrity of the examiner, ultimately. Yes. At the end of the day, it's the examiner. If I don't know how to construct the right questions, I may not cover all the elements of the crime, or I might cause you to react or not react. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.